So now we're going to move to the anions, which are the negatively charged nutritive elements, the major nutritive elements here. And these, these elements are not predominantly stored on the, the colloidal exchange complex, the, the, in, on the colloidal clays and in the colloidal humus, because that's predominantly negatively charged. There are some edge sites, there's some sites on the edges of those clays that do have pos, uh, positively charged sites, and so they can hold some of these, but it's not a huge amount of, of ability to, to hold that. It's predominantly held, uh, stored in organic matter. And if you're short these things, the best way to build reserves on them is to continue to make them, keep them at their optimum levels all the time so that they continue to be built into the organic matter so that you can store that up. And we're going to talk about that when we get to the carbon fertility and, and storing oil in the lamp. You want to have surplus oil. You want to have the reserve ready for the tearing. And, and we're going to talk about how that, how that happens. Um, so let's just jump right into it here. Okay, we're going to look at nitrogen. Now, we actually, I actually have two. This is how, these are the forms that nitrogen is utilized in as NH4+, which is ammonium nitrogen, and it's actually a cation. I, I forgot that I had this here. It's actually a cation, and it's actually held on the soil colloids. It can be held on the soil colloids. So if you're, depending on the overall dynamics when I'm recommending stuff, sometimes ammonium nitrogen is a better source because it's not going to go anywhere really fast. Nitrate nitrogen, which is the NO3, with a single minus charge, is highly soluble. And if it doesn't have anywhere to go, it's going if it, with the rainwater. And an important thing to remember about this is it doesn't go by itself. Guess what goes with it? Calcium. calcium. It takes calcium with it. Um, you'll see there's a lot of ways to lose calcium. There's a lot of ways to lose the graciousness that we have towards people. Um, and it's because of a lot of other character qualities that, that come into play. But uh, rainwater, which is acidic, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is dissolved in water and produces carbonic acid. And when it falls on the soil, that carbonic acid can leach uh, again. If there's things in excess, it will take those, but it has a desire for calcium. And so a lot of times, if I have to do that. I had to learn about water. The Lord seemed to take me, all the places I went to you know, grow at, had to seem to have all of the things that were problems that I had to figure out. But in, in figuring them out, then I'm able to help other people solve their problems because I understand them. When we were in Colorado, um, we had um, sodium bicarbonate in our water. And um, sodium bicarbonate, just briefly, remember, what does sodium do to the soil structure? It disperses it. It collapses it. And what bicarbonate does is it, it grabs calcium and turns it into calcium carbonate. Turns it back into calcium carbonate. And guess what takes its place on the colloid, on the charge site? The sodium takes its place. And it collapses your soil structure. Well, we had that problem in Colorado with our groundwater. It had sodium bicarbonate in it. And we had to, and I can tell you, I'm sharing this because the wrong spirit can ruin everything you're trying to do with the soil. I would much rather deal with the soil than I would deal with water quality. Because water quality, and I'm going to share this on Friday night, the, the soil, or the, the, the mineralization of the soil can take on the characteristics of the water, but the water is supposed to take on the characteristics of the soil. And in ideal conditions, the water and the soil should be, you know, one and the same. They should be, 
But if you've got stuff, if you've got stuff coming in on your water, it's altering the character of your soil. And in most cases, it's not in a good way. It's, it's not, it's in a bad way. So, um, we're going to talk a little bit about that when we get to the water, water part of it and the issues that water, you know, you have with water. Okay, of course it's rolls, it's, it's involved in vegetative growth and a lot of nitrogen is used. When we grow uh, in our, our tomatoes, we grow them high density, uh, indeterminates. They, when we're done with them, we've got about 20, 20 to 25 feet of vine. Um, and we've produced about 200,000 pounds the acre. I don't know what that is in kilos. Um, that's a lot of tomatoes. But we're also pulling hundreds of pounds of nitrogen. Hundreds of pounds of nitrogen. And we don't have that much in the soil. So we're either having to apply something with nitrogen in it, or we're having to make sure that those free-living microbes in that soil are really cranking out the nitrogen. And if you look at it, you know, a lot of people say, well, you, I, don't want to, I don't want to put fertilizers on. Well, you can grow without fertilizers, but you can't grow without fertility. And so it's a matter of if you need something, you, you add up, like uh, if you looked at that soil test, and I, I won't go back to it right now, but uh, under nitrogen there was a, it said ENR. And what that is is an estimated nitrogen release. And what you do is you take the amount of organic matter there, and, and they, they have a formula you can calculate the estimated amount of nitrogen that's going to release in any given season. That's an estimate because the better the conditions are, not only the soil conditions but the environmental conditions, that number goes up and more, become, more is available. The poorer the conditions, the, the, the lower that number is. So it's just an estimate of what it is. But anyway, let's say I needed 500 pounds of nitrogen. And uh, in my soils I only have uh, um, a humus content of about 1.5 to 1.9. It's not very good. We're working on, you know, increasing that, but we have to get the chemistry right before the biology is really going to start working on that. We'll talk about that with the carbon fertility. Um, so if I have, my ENRs would be in the 50 to 60 pound range, so I get 50 to 60 pounds out of, out of the, you know, the humus in the soil, I need 500. You know, you can get, we're in a high tunnel, so we're not going to get a lot of nitrogen from rainwater. You can get a little bit of nitrogen in rainwater because there is some uh, of nitrogen made available in that whole process. So, you know, it might be a few pounds, but we're in a high tunnel, so we're not going to get any of that. And we can kind of estimate a little bit, you know, about what we might get from the nitrogen fixers or whatever, but I've got to come up with a lot of nitrogen. If I want to grow that crop, I have to come up with that nitrogen. Now. Um, like I said, you can grow without fertilizers, but you can't grow without fertility. So you either you got to find some way that you're going to you're going to supply that, um, or you're not going to produce that kind of crop. You're not going to produce it. It's that simple. If you only want to grow, you know, 100,000 pounds or 50,000 pounds to the acre, well, you're going to need a whole lot less, and and that may be more realistic for what you want or uh, all you want to do or whatever. Um, which is fine, so you need to have a lot less, so then coming up with that amount you know, might be a little bit easier. But you have to have it, you can't do without it. So where you get it from, you know, you'll have to decide. I, we use largely protein meals um, because then the biology has to break it down, it's a slower release material, uh, and you get it over time, and it tends to fluctuate depending on the demand of the plant. We can get, uh, I don't like using a lot of soluble nitrogen sources. We do use some ammonium sources of nitrogen. Um, I don't. I do not use chemically unstable 
sources. So like I talked about, well, we'll talk about with the phosphorus, but in this case, I would not use anhydrous ammonia because it's high pH and it's anhydrous. It has no water. So what happens as soon as you put that, inject that into the soil? It's grabbing after water from everywhere. It's denaturing life everywhere to pull the, suck the water out of it. And the high pH is going to be neutralized and brought down to a more neutral pH. Um, and so I don't use, the, I don't recommend that people use that type of chemistry. I don't care if it's man-made chemistry, it's just got to be good chemistry. Um, so I don't recommend that, but we use like, we'll use, um, uh, well we use protein meals primarily. We do use some as, as an injectable, we use calcium nitrate and potassium nitrate sometimes as a source um, because we have to maintain nitrogen levels to keep the vegetative growth going. Uh, but we use primarily the protein meals. And we actually use biological inoculants. We, we inoculate with nitrogen-fixing bacteria and everything to elevate you know, the, the availability of that. And I, that's the kind of thing where I, I don't even recommend it to people until they get a certain level of, of balance in their soil because it won't function very well. And people are always trying to sell you all kinds of things. There's, I mean, there's an endless amount of things you can spend your money on, but you want it to be effective. You want to make sure that your investment is an effect, that, you know, you're getting a return on that investment and you're not just spending money and it didn't really do anything for you. And you spend the money again, you spend the money again, and it's not really beneficial. When the point comes when it is helpful, then it might be a good idea because then it'll become endemic. It won't, it won't be something you have to continue putting on. You apply it at that point and now the conditions are such that it's going to stay there and you don't have to keep buying it and, and inoculating with it and everything. What are the protein meals sourced from? Um, well, uh, I think this will come down to people's priority, whether they want to use any kind of animal product or they don't want to use any. Um, you have, on the plant-based side, you have alfalfa meal, but you have to take into consideration the rest of the chemistry because alfalfa is high in calcium. And so if you have high calcium levels, it may not be what you want to use. Um, if you have high phosphate levels, it does have phosphate in it. So you, you may not want to use it because of that. So when I, when I recommend, I look at the whole picture before I give the options about, okay, what are these are your options. Um, you have soybean meal, you know, like, uh, like um, legume meals, soybean is the biggest one. The drawback to that is most of what we have in the States is, is all genetically engineered. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's not a great source of, of that. Cottonseed is another plant source. It's, it's acidifying, but it's also, you've got a lot of genetically engineered. It's hard to know whether you have even if you get organic cottonseed or organic soybean meal, you never know whether it's actually GMO-free or not because of the way the whole dynamic is going on in the growing environment. Um, those, are, those are the predominant protein meals. There's some others that are more exotic, like the, the hemp uh, meal. Um, I'm trying to think of it. There's a few others, but they're either very exotic and very expensive, and most people don't have access to them. So alfalfa meal is pr the primary one that I usually, oh, peanut meal, you, you know, peanut meal is another one. They use a lot of chemicals in the processing of the peanuts, too, and a lot of chemicals on the peanuts, so you have to be mindful of that. I don't worry about it as much as some people do if I have good biology going on in the soil because it'll degrade a lot of that stuff and it won't be detrimental. Um, if you don't, then you better be a little more mindful of the hazards that might come along with it, but peanut meal is another, you know, good ni nitrogen source. Use charcoal or activated charcoal. Can we save that question for carbon fertility? We'll get to it. Yeah. Um, and then the other protein meals that are animal-based, you have uh, like feather meal, which is the feathers from chickens and turkeys, and, and you know other fowl 
their, their feathers that they hydrolyze and break down. And that's what I actually use. I use feather meal because it's a medium release material. It's not a rapid release. Um, it's a medium release material and it fluctuates depending on the demand and, and the, the, the environmental influences going on. Um, there's blood meal. I'm not a big fan of blood meal. It's, it's a rapid release uh, source, but uh, I don't rec usually recommend it unless somebody says that's what they're going to use and that's what they want. Uh, there's um, fish meal, and so you can, that's a pretty good source because you're getting other nutrients with it. Again, if you have phosphate issues, then you wouldn't be using fish meal. If I use fish, I usually use an enzymatically digested fish, um, which is the whole fish that's it's enzymatically digested. It, it, it doesn't denature the proteins and the amino acids and all that kind of stuff, so it's a lot better source. It uses, takes a lot less. I don't generally use fish meal. The downside to it is, and including the blood meal and even the, the, in the feather meal, with the proliferation of more and more organic growing, the cost of those things have gotten really high, and so it's really expensive sources of, the, of those materials. So I, I always try to get things moved so that I can get natural nitrogen cycling going on because it's the most economical. I'm not afraid to use materials like urea, like a 46% urea, which is a commercial source. We use ammonium sulfate uh, because most cases people need sulfur and if, the, if that's what's warranted and that's what the person want, if, they don't, if it doesn't matter to them whether they're certifiable organic or not, a lot of times we'll use that. Stable chemistry, that's why I use it, stable chemistry. Um, we use uh, monoammonium phosphate, or diammonium phosphate. I usually use monoammonium because the chemistry is, is more stable than diammonium phosphate. The ammonium level is higher in that, so I, I, don't, um, I don't use it as much, but if, if that's all people have available, then we adjust everything so that they can utilize that one instead of the, the monoammonium phosphate. Uh, so those are kind of the sources. I've gone through them. We probably have the sources there. So anyways, vegetative growth, protein and enzyme formation, chlorophyll production, and it's mobile. So where are you going to see the deficiency symptoms? In the older part of the, the older leaves, the older part of the plant. Um, and I just put this in there to, it's, it's the nitrogen cycle. How nitrogen cycles through uh, the growing system and the environment and everything. And I just put it in there to say that if you can get that cycling going, that's your optimum source of nitrogen. Because what typically happens is the demand on the, on the system tends to drive how much is produced. And so you don't have excesses that are going to leach stuff out and cause excessive growth that you don't want and, and all of that. So I just put that in there for that reason. To, uh, the sources, we went through these some. Uh, the ammonium sulfate, which is 21% nitrogen, 24% sulfur. If you need both of those, in most cases people do, and that's the right one to fit, that's a gr really good source of nitrogen and sulfur. Chilean nitrate again, um, if you need the sodium, it's a good source. It's highly soluble, so you don't want to overdo that one. Calcium nitrate is also a good source. We use that one. It's highly soluble, though, so you want to be sure what, what you're putting on is actually needed because if it's not, it's going to go away and you just spent your money and you didn't get any benefit from it. So potassium nitrate, the same thing. If you need the potassium, it's a, it's a highly available source, but you don't want to put it on unless you need it. The protein meals we talked about. Uh, then there's compost and manures. You can use compost and manures, they have nitrogen in them, and you can kind of calculate about how much you can expect. Cal compost and manures are way overused, though. The amounts that people put on, let's say, I have people say, well, I put an inch of compost on. 
Well, you know how much an inch of compost is on a per acre basis? It's about 75 tons. In nature, the most residue you would see in nature in general would be maybe 10, 15 tons at the most. You're putting five times the, the amount of organic matter on that would be put on in, in, uh, in a natural system. And there are hazards to that. We were talking in the interim there of one of the hazards, which we're going to touch when we get to phosphorus, about what happens with that. But it's, it's, it's way overused. And uh, when we get to the carbon fertility part, I'll show you the ways that it, it's, there's alternatives to doing that. Um, but it's, it's largely used for the nitrogen. And people don't keep, you know, taking into consideration everything else that's coming along with it. It's just to get the nitrogen out of it. So they put so many tons on to get enough nitrogen that they need to get out of it um, to do that. And they don't take into consideration everything else they're getting with it. Enzymatically digested fish, which is about 2 to 3% nitrogen, it's stable. Um, the only thing with most of those is they stabilize with phosphoric acid. Um, you're allowed to use it in certifiable organic operations. But again, if you don't need the phosphorus, you might not want to be using that. And symbiotic and free-living nitrogen fixers, which is my preference, that the sooner I can get to that, the happier I am. Okay, our next one here is phosphorus. And this is, uh, it's got a triple negative charge. <coughs> when you put it on the soil, if you put it on the surface of the soil and you don't work it in, that's where it's gonna stay. Because as soon as it hits that soil, it's highly reactive, and that triple negative charge is going to grab something and, uh, and uh, stay put. And the only way you get rid of it is either growing it out or washing it away. If the soil erodes away, you know, washes away, it'll go with it. But you're not going to leach it out. And this is the number one problem that people get themselves into trouble with. Because you cannot get rid of it if you put too much on. Nobody knows how to. Now, there's some things you can do by elevating the, all the other levels of the things that are being suppressed by the excessive level. Um, manganese tends to have a little bit of control over it. So, again, but that's going to be pulling that up to optimize uh, the uh, manganese levels anyway. But uh, I know growers that have been trying to grow out excessive phosphorus for 25 years, and the level has not budged. Because when you get that phosphorus level in there, and you, it, it, it just stimulates the biology to break more out of the soil. And so it's one of those things, it's, it's a problem you don't want to get yourself into if you can avoid it. And a lot of organic, I have a lot of organic growers that are in that problem because of the compost applications. Uh, in compost, most of the elements that you're putting on are leachable they, and they're used in higher quantities. And so they either they get leached out or they get used up. The phosphorus is not used in as high levels and it just winds up accumulating and accumulating and accumulating and every time you put that mount on you just accumulate a little bit more and um, I have a guy in, in Georgia, the state of Georgia part of his ground he put a ton of mushroom compost on I mean not a ton, I mean that figuratively but he put a massive amount of, of mushroom compost on that and he messed his soil up when we took soil tests of the area we didn't put any on it was, he had really good chemistry already but where he put the compost on now he had problems that we had to contend with to try to work on until we could get you know, stuff you know, in a good enough condition. To, it's going really well now. I mean, we've got it, got it uh, we stopped him from putting any more on. Um, this is why good information is important, by the way. 
If you know what you need, one, you're not going to put things on that you don't need, waste the money, and then have the problem, the headaches that are a result of it. And you'll, the resources you do have, you're going to spend on the things that are going to make the biggest difference, that are going to create the best conditions for you. And so having that good information is worth every penny that you spend for it. You just want to be sure that it is actually good information. Because if it's, if it's not, um, then you're just kind of in a guessing game anyway, whether you took the soil test or not, because you don't know whether the information you got was reliable or not. Okay, so the roles of phosphorus, reproductive growth. It is part of the genetic material, energy storage and transfer, and this is a big one. These are all big factors in healthy growth and getting a soil system so that the plants are fully functional. Um, but energy is a big one, energy transfer. Uh, early root growth, it aids in blooming and fruiting, speeds crop maturity, and it is mobile. Um, so where are you most likely to see in, in phosphorus's case, you can kind of see it in a lot of places, but you would more likely see it in the lower growth, but you can actually see it all over the place in there. Um, so remember I said the difference between photosynthetic growth and biosynthetic growth? This is one of the key, with, with calcium, calcium and phosphorus are two of the key components in biosynthetic growth. But they're the two components that people get carried away with the most as well. And when you get carried away with them, then it's not helpful to you anymore. Okay, so let's see if there's any of those more of those I want to talk more about. This is, this is one of the key components also of making sure that the energy function, the energy flow in the plant is adequate for the plant to fully function and to help prevent disease and pest pressure. You know, when you get, you know, get the, the right energy available in the plant, then metabolism takes place in, in the right rates and things get done. Um, when you don't have it, it causes a problem. You get incomplete uh, proteins, you get incomplete compounds, and a lot of the disease organisms and a lot of the, 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 the uh, smaller pet insect pests like uh, aphids, whitefly, thrips, um, we have a big problem with uh, um, spotted wing drosophila now, which is a little insect that put, lays its eggs in, in berries, like blackberries, raspberries, that type of thing. Uh, I bring that up because I want to point out the, the female spotted wing drosophila is looking for a place to lay the eggs that it knows will have food for those eggs when they hatch, right? So it smells the free nitrate in the tissue. If it didn't smell that free nitrate in the tissue, it would never lay the eggs there. Because those, those, uh, when those eggs hatch, they need that simple nitrogen to feed on. They can't feed on amino acids and proteins. They can't digest complex co proteins, compo compounds. And so they would never lay the eggs there and you would never have the problem if you didn't have excess um, nitrogen in there. Uh, and that relates to other nutrient elements like phosphorus. Okay, deficiency symptoms, stunted growth, reddening or purpling of leaves, uh, poor or no flowering or fruiting. If you're not getting flowering and fruiting, you, then you might have a problem with phosphorus. Excesses, tie up of other nutrients, poor growth, um, again, phosphorus is a triple charge. It can tie up a lot of other nutrients in excess, and so that's a problem. And, and poor growth also is a result of that. I'll give you a, an indicator of excessive phosphate, uh, one of those observational things. If you have, you know what pill bugs are or sow bugs? The little things, they call them roly polies too. I don't know what you guys call them here. They look like little armored, multi-legged, um, or snails. 
or slugs. If you have any of those and you got a lot of them, they're doing a lot of damage, I can assure you you have excess phosphate. They love phosphate. And um, if you have, you know, if you're getting damage from any of those kind of things, then if you were to do a soil test, you would see that you have excess phosphate. There are some other factors that play a role, but phosphate's the biggest one, phosphorus. Okay, sources, uh, you have hard rock phosphate, which is really ore, you know, rock phosphate ore is what they process into commercial phosphate sources. It's not readily available, I don't know if it is in this country, but in, in the U.S., they don't make it available because it's all being used to make commercial phosphorus sources. Um, it's 24 to 30 percent um, phosphate, so you'd have to reduce that to 44 percent of that to get elemental, and it's up to 30 percent calcium. It's a long-term storage because it takes the microbes, depending on how fine you grind it, the more surface area, the faster microbes can break it down, but it's a longer-term source because it takes more time to break down. And then you have colloidal and reactive phosphates. They're, they're, they're usually the the, uh, what they wash off of the, the high-grade ore when they, they mine it or quarry it to go and, and make uh, commercial sources with it. Um, and one's more of a, the colloidal is more of a, a, a clay-based um, phosphate source. It's, it's highly available, it's about 20, and they're both, a reactive phosphate is just a different type of that. 20% um, again phosphate, 20% calcium in that. Then there's monoammonium phosphate, which I mentioned, which is 11% nitrogen and 52% phosphate. It's a really good source if you need both of those things. A bone meal, which is a basically uh, what rock phosphate is. Um, again, so it has similar numbers to the others. It's an expensive source uh, to utilize bone meal compared to the, like the, the uh, colloidal or reactive phosphate. And uh, compost or animal manures, again, is half percent to three percent phosphate, depending on the source of the manure. Um, hog manure is the highest phosphate source manure. A lot of people don't like to use hog manure. Um, so, but again, if somebody's wanting to use manures, and we, I, we had a situation where there was a dairy and there was a hog operation, and the one place was excessive in calcium but needed phosphate, and the other place was uh, excessive in phosphate and needed cal uh, well, the other way around. And so the guys that were raising the hogs just gave their manure to the, the guys raising the, the dairy cows, and the, and the dairy cows, their manure, they went to the other thing, and it worked out good for them because they needed each other's. If they put it on their own, um, it wouldn't have worked really well for them. And is horse manure on that scale, like in relation? Horse manure is kind of in between, and horse manure is a pretty good is a pretty good compost source because it's a fairly balanced. It's not it's not highly reactive. So it's a fairly good it's a fairly good source. Yeah, there's lots of exotics. I have a guy that's using alpaca and llama manure. He's got a farm that's close to him, and they, they're trying to get rid of it, and they give it to him for free. So he's using that. So we had to do analysis on that to see what it was, what it was. I've got a guy who's using rabbit manure in his garden. He only has a garden. So he's using rabbit manure because he raises rabbits for meat. Um, so there's a lot of exotic sources. I'm just trying to do the main the main sources here. Okay, let's get on to sulfur. Sulfur is probably one of the biggest problems in agriculture today. It's got a double negative charge, and it's actually used in as, as high a quantities in most cases as, as phosphorus is. But you notice most, if you look on, a, on a, an analysis bag on a fertilizer bag, or if you look on a soil test, they'll always represent sulfur as the elemental sulfur and they'll, they'll represent phosphorus as the compound phosphate. 
But if you take them and, and you compare them, either sulfate and phosphate or elemental sulfur and elemental phosphorus, pound for pound, it takes about as much sulfur. And if you're growing um, high sulfur requiring crops like alliums, onions, garlic, leeks, those type of things, they require a lot of sulfur. They require more sulfur than they do phosphorus. And it's, it's considered a secondary element, and phosphorus is considered a primary element. Um, and brassicas, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, collards, kale, those types of things, they require a lot of sulfur too. So, um, and in higher quantities than they do phosphorus. And sulfur leaches, easy, out of the soil. It's the, and it's the, it's the element that you use to get rid of excess cations. It will take calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium out of the soil. It will leach it out. And you use sulfur to, to take excess out. Um, because it does leach, but it always takes something with it, just like the nitrogen does. Um, there's some things I could share about this, so we don't have time to, time to do that. But let me just share this one, because, I, you know, I believe that you, probably, you guys are all probably concerned about health. You, you, you take into consideration your diet and you, what you're eating and everything like that. So let's say you, you bought some whole grain wheat, you fresh ground your wheat, and you made it into a loaf of bread and you baked it, you would think you had really good, a really nutritious food there, wouldn't you? I would. If the sulfur level is not high enough in that wheat, as soon as the temperature, now this is in Fahrenheit, so as soon as the temperature goes over 160 degrees when you're baking that bread, it starts producing the carcinogen acrylamide in that bread. And here you think you have, you're doing something that's nourishing to yourself and your family, and then you're creating a problem doing that. This is a, this is a predominant problem with wheat in our country. I don't, you know, I don't know anywhere else, but the wheat grown in our country has become largely sulfur deficient. And you're seeing all kinds of allergies to, to wheat. And this is one of the reasons. Sulfur is a major contributor to the allergic reactions people have to food. And when you put the sulfur back into the soil and it goes back into the foods you're eating, I've taken people that had allergies and they, don't, they no longer have allergies to those foods if they eat what we grow because it has the sulfur in it. Um, so it's a, it plays a critical role. It's easy to lose it. So it's something you really have to pay attention to. And it's just as important as the other major elements. It's just measured in different terms. And as a result of that, people think one's more important than the other. Can you say sulfur deficiency causes Yes. Deficiency, yeah. But the interesting thing is a lot of people will have allergic reactions to things with sulfur in them. Yeah. Because of that, like if you ate, if you, yeah, 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 sulfur apricots, if people eat eggs and some of the sulfur that's added, or even alliums like onions and, and garlic, they'll have an allergic reaction. It's because they're already deficient in sulfur and so they can't, they, they can't actually properly metabolize that sulfur. And so what winds up happening is, is people start avoiding the things that would give them the sulfur that they need because of the, the adverse reaction that they have to it. And so in order to be able to get it to them, you've got you've to produce a more balanced onion, a more balanced leek, a more balanced head of broccoli. And then they, when they consume it, they're not going to have that allergic reaction because it's free sulfur. It's actually a free sulfur that's in those things that's causing the allergic reaction. It's not sulfur built into amino acids and other compounds. It's very critical for um, collagen formation and joint function, 
flexibility, um, and it's, it's severely missing in agriculture. There's reasons why I shared some of them back when, but we don't have time to do that right now to, again, but it's missing because a lot of things changed in life where we took it out of coal, we took it out of the gasoline, we took it out of the fertilizer sources that it used to be in, and, and people just assume it's still there, and it's not anymore. And like I said, it's highly leachable, and so it's easily lost out of the soil. Sorry, I didn't understand. That's the application of glyphosate that may end up Well, you're saying if you apply phosphate, will it affect the sulfur? Yeah, it'll actually suppress sulfur. That's one of the biggest things you have to be concerned about when you have excess phosphate, is you have to make sure that you've got adequate sulfur there. Because if you don't, the, the, the antagonism of the phosphate, the phosphorus will suppress it to the point where if it's already deficient, you may not be getting any at all. Okay, the deficiency symptoms are similar to nitrogen deficiency. It's, it's a general paling of the, the green color of the plant, um, uh, the leaves. Uh, the excess symptoms are symptoms of other anion deficiencies due to suppression. So if you get too much sulfur, it's going to also suppress or antagonize other um, anions, nitrogen, boron is a big one that you might have to be concerned about, uh, and phosphorus. I have to juggle these things all the time because I have stuff coming in and people are deficient in phosphorus but they need sulfur and they need to get rid of excessive cations and so I need to apply ex extra sulfur in order to push those cations out like I can't do it because the phosphate level is too low and if I put too much sulfur on it will suppress the phosphate and, and so those are the kind of things you have to look at when you're, when you're actually doing a recommendation for somebody. What are the overall conditions and what's going to work? And so sometimes you have to take your time on things to get things to a certain level and once you get them there then you, you can ratchet up what you're doing and, and address it a little bit more. Okay, sources. Elemental sulfur, it's 90-92% sulfur. Um, something to keep in mind with this is when elemental sulfur reacts to go to the, sul the sulfate form, it, is, it reacts into the sulfuric acid form first. And in the sulfuric acid form, it's very damaging. But, and a lot of people say, well, we shouldn't use that because it'll damage the biology. When it actually moves to the sulfate form, the biology rapidly recovers. Rapidly recovers because it needed the sulfur. Um, so. I call this um, being wounded to be healed. You know, sometimes we have to be wounded before we can be healed. And, and so you end up in a much better place. It's just in the process, you know, there's some negative impact of it. Uh, ammonium sulfate, again, which is nitrogen and sulfur, if you, you need that source. Gypsum, which is calcium sulfate. Um, I was talking to someone. You always have to have at least 60% saturation of calcium before you use this form of calcium though. Because if you have less than 60% uh, calcium, you will actually lose calcium by using gypsum. Because calcium is very exposed. And I, we, nobody really understands the total dynamics of why that happens. I had an apple grower in North Carolina and somebody told him to put four tons of gypsum on. You should never put more than a ton at a time anyway. But he put four tons of gypsum on. He stripped everything out of his soil. We were having to foliar feed his trees so they wouldn't die because it just stripped that sulfur. The amount of sulfur he put on, he put like a 1,200 pounds of sulfur on. And it just, it just stripping everything out. And his trees were dying. We had to go come in until we could get stuff straightened back out. 
Um, so, you know, there's a time and a place for everything, and you need to be sure, you know, you've got the conditions before you can use certain things. Um, again, sulfomag and K-mag again, because it has a sulfur component if you need the other things. Magnesium sulfate if you need the magnesium. Uh, potassium sulfate, again, if you need the potassium, or the, the most, the, the primary sources. Um, if you grow a lot of alliums and brassicas, the compost you get out, of, if you compost the, the leaves and all the stuff and everything, it's going to be a pretty good source of sulfur on it. You probably won't produce enough to, um, to get what you need usually. I've seen losses of, of one to two hundred pounds of sulfur in a year just from leaching. You put it on and the next year you come and test and it's all gone because it, it easily leaches out of the soil. And you, you need to build it into the organic matter because it's not going to stay there. And I have to, again, I have to take into consideration how much do I apply to make sure that the plant, the growth is optimum without accidentally leaching out something I don't want leached out or wasting it until you can work your way up into optimum levels. Um, okay, got it. Anybody have any questions? I got to switch this to the trace elements here real quick. and. Okay, so now we're going to start looking at the trace elements. There are the elements that you use in smaller quantities. Um, you have to be very careful with them because they can become toxic in, in applied in the wrong quantities or under the wrong conditions. And so you have to be you know, intelligent about what you, how you're handling them. The organic group people, the organic growers and the certifiers and everything are, are just totally paranoid and terrified of trace elements. They don't really understand them and they don't know how to properly utilize them and so most of the materials you have available to your oxide forms rather than sulfate forms, the reduced form, they're not immediately available and they usually put elemental sulfur in with them and they'll call it a sulfate on the bag but it's not, it's an oxide with sulfur, elemental sulfur added and the idea is that the, the sulfur when it breaks down into the sulfuric acid form will release the, the, uh, the uh, element from the oxide, from the oxygen, from the oxidized form and reduce it. Um, but it's not an efficient way of doing it. And there's nothing wrong with using the, the reduced forms already, the sulfate forms is the most economical way of doing it. You just have to know, um, you have to know when enough is enough, you know, what the point. So the first one we're gonna look at is boron. It's an anion. Uh, I didn't put the charge up there, but uh, its roles are cell wall integrity. It keeps calcium mobile. It's involved in flower sets, so if your flowers drop and they don't pollinate, there's a good chance you might not have adequate boron uh, in the plant. Translocation of starches and sugars, when you're filling fruit out, uh, you, you want to be sure you have adequate boron there because that works with potassium to, to translocate the sugars into the fruit. Um, I do have a desired value on these. I didn't go through the desired, I apologize, I didn't go through the desired values. We can shoot through them real quick. <laughs> The, the next. Um, normally, under the tests that I use, the protocols that I use, you want about a one and a half to two parts per million. But I have some high CEC soils uh, with high calcium levels, and they have three, four parts per million, and it's not going to hurt anything. Calcium, the other thing about calcium is it controls everything else. And so if the calcium levels are really good, then you can, you can handle a lot more trace elements. And this is where you get major changes in, in your growth. When you get your major elements in optimum condition and your calcium magnesium balances and you've got the proper porosity, you can raise the trace element levels a lot higher than people normally keep them at. And virtually all your, your disease pressure will, and pest pressure will just disappear very quickly once you get to that point. 
Most people never get to that point. Most people are never motivated to get to that point. Uh, you have a lot of growers that use this model, and they're just content to get along. They, they never try to optimize the whole thing, which is strange to me. But um, Sources are sodium borate, which comes in different percentages. It's all sodium borate. It's just a matter of how many water molecules are with it, so it's 10 to 20% boron. Uh, boric acid, which is 17% boron, is the actual form that the plant uses. And you can actually apply more boric acid than you can sodium borate, because in the in that form, it can become toxic. This is one of those elements that you have to limit how much you apply at one time. They used to use this as a weed killer. Um, if you apply, if you, if you get, um, I usually only recommend two pounds of actual boron at any given time, because if you double up, you're only at four. If you go over four, um, you run the risk of, of a phytotoxic reaction that will kill a plant. Well, you know, it's one thing if you're growing a short-term crop, but if you're growing a perennial crop and you kill it, that's, that's not a good thing. So I always err on the side of caution. If, if, uh, um, if I know the grower and I know they'll listen to instructions, sometimes I'll double that, um, but I very reluctantly do it. And the reason is, is because whatever I recommend has to hold up in a court of law. You know, I have to be able to go back and say, if somebody says, well, I did this and it killed this, then I can go back and say, well, this would never have done that if it was applied correctly. But if I put on there, yeah, just put on whatever you want. People do it anyway. But I, I used to put notes on my recommendation. This is the most that you should apply at one time. I don't put it on there anymore. I mean, I, most of the people, they, they've got it figured out now, but it's the most that you should apply at one time. You can apply double that if you're careful not to overlap and you're fairly uniform with it. You can apply more after you get good soaking rains and it integrates in, or irrigation cycles, you can apply it again. Um, if you're really deficient and you're needing to get it worked up to a higher level more quickly, uh, I, I apply, it, it's highly leachable, again, it's easily lost. And um, one of the things I want to point out here, I waited till here to point it out, if you go above 7.5% saturation of potassium, you will begin blocking out, or tying up boron and it won't be available to the plant. It doesn't matter how good the level of boron is in the, in the soil, if, if potassium saturation goes above 7.5%, it'll begin tying it up, and you won't get adequate boron for the kind of growth that you need on it. So you want to make sure you stay into that balance, that, that the levels you're supposed to stay at. Um, we'll see on one of the other trace elements to help. Potassium also plays a role with sodium that cause another problem here. Okay, so the deficiency symptoms are growing tip dieback and internal stem disorders. So like if you have beets with a hollow heart in it or, or, or broccoli where the stem is hollow in the middle, that's boron deficiency. Um, potatoes, sometimes they'll have the hollow heart and watermelons. If you ever have a watermelon, you cut it open, there's a big crack in the middle of it. Um, that's boron deficiency. Uh, excesses, phytotoxic reaction, and death. If you put too much on at one time, that's what they used to do as a weed killer. They just put, you know, eight pounds of boron on, kill everything, and it doesn't, it's not persistent, it doesn't stay. It integrates in eventually, and, and then it's not a problem anymore. But, and to avoid that, apply no more than two pounds of actual boron at one time. All right, let's look at iron real quick here. How much time do I have or am I need to stop? Uh, I'm sorry, you're out. I'm out of time. Okay, well, let's not start with iron then. We'll, we'll quickly, we only have iron, manganese, zinc, and copper left here. And we're going to touch on the cobalt and the molybdenum and a couple of other elements um, just briefly. But let's stop there. Let's take a quick break. 
Um, do I have another hour after this? Are we done? So the next session is 4.15 to 5.15. And what time are they? And what time is it? It is now 2 minutes past 4. 2 minutes past 4. And? <laughs> My apologies that we've gotten behind the media people. I always get the media people upset with me because I, never, I have the hardest time just keeping it within the, the box that it's supposed to be in. Um, so, then, so then they have to go and do editing to try to, a lot of times they'll edit the questions out, they'll have to edit the questions out in order to keep the, the content. So I don't know how they're going to feel about all this, but uh, we'll, get, we'll get done the material some way or another. It just won't be packaged the way it's supposed to be, unfortunately, I think. Okay, let's just jump into it here. Let's look at iron, um, its roles. Iron is also, it has several different charge forms. And it can have a triple negative charge that can be a problem just like the aluminum can be. Um, but, and I think we have really high iron levels and we're showing iron deficiency in our soils. Isn't that a crazy thing? Um, but I think, it, there's, it, I think it has, it's an issue with calcium more than it is anything else, really. Because when we apply calcium, I was applying foliar iron because I thought, because it looked like an iron deficiency, which we'll get to in a minute here. Um, and so I was applying foliar iron and it was clearing it up, but it kept coming back. Um, and then I, I was looking at some other things, the growing tip and everything, and I was thinking there, there's calcium deficiency here too. So I started applying calcium and the, the calcium deficiency went away and the iron deficiency went away on that. And I discovered this is the high tunnel that we're having the increase in the CEC on, this, this dramatic increase in the, in the CEC, and I'm, una, I'm not keeping up with the requirements for the soil. Because you can't apply, you, you can't anticipate, oh, well, the CEC is going to go up two or three points, and so I got to apply that material ahead of time. You don't know that. So I, I fell behind with calcium, and I fell even further behind. This year when I did the soil test, I was even further behind because it jumped four points. From, from where it was. We're, we're using potassium silicate here. We, we're, we're rebuilding clay, crystalline clay, by putting the silicon back in the soil in an available form. And that's the only conclusion I can come to is that, you know, we're, we're rebuilding the, the colloidal capacity of those clays by getting silicon back in where aluminum or iron or magnesium substituted and collapsed the clay. Um, but I don't know for sure. I just, I just know what's happening. And I thought it was a fluke. The first time it happened, but after two years of the same thing happening and it continuing to rise, um, sometimes uh, if you have a lot of sulfur in the system that hasn't fully integrated, it can affect the pH. Uh, a lot of nitrogen put on within a 60-day you know, time frame can affect it too. Really dry conditions can affect it and change all that stuff, but um, then none of those conditions applied in this case. So anyway, the rolls of iron, they're part of many enzyme systems. They're actually part of the chlorophyll molecule. Um, and required for chlorophyll formation. And so if you want full photosynthesis, you've got you know, chlorophyll along with magnesium. You have to have adequate quantities of those available in order to, um, to have good green leaf color. And the iron gives a, a darkness to the leaf that actually absorbs more of the, the, the heat from the sun, the photosynthetic energy from the sun. Um, and the sources are, uh, the, the primary one I use is is the reduced form ferrous sulfate either in the 21% or the 30% um, quantity. The difference here is again the amount of water. The 21% has more water and it's more highly soluble and it's kind of a blue-green color to it. 
The 30% has kind of a whitish gray color to it. I would never recommend, if you, if you get a material and it says it's 50% iron, or it has a black color to it, or a red color to it, it's an oxide. You have plenty of that in most cases in your soil, it's just not available, so you're just wasting your money putting it on, because you'll just add to the material you don't have any access to. You want it to be available, so you want to use it in a sulfate form. Um, and, and one of these forms is preferable to the others. By the way, iron is one of those things that blueberries need a lot of. But we have, we have, like in our, in our soil, we don't have the low pH, but we have plenty of iron. We've got five to 600 parts per million of iron and you only need 200 on there. So we have plenty of iron, but we're having issues with iron, but I don't think it's an iron deficiency, it's a metabolism problem. The iron's not properly being metabolized and made available on it. Okay, deficiency symptoms are intervenal chlorosis on younger leaves. Again, it's not mobile, and so it shows up in the younger leaves. Uh, and it's, when it says intervenal, you know if you look at a leaf, you see the veins of the leaf, and then the space between it. The space between it will turn green before this, the veins do on there. So that's why it says intervenal, because it'll, it'll turn colors. Now, on tomatoes, when I, yeah, some of them, it actually turns light yellow you know, across the whole thing. You can't really see that that pronounced vein quite as much on it. Uh, there are no known symptoms to excess iron except, you know, it can interfere um, with other nutrients sometimes. Uh, one of the problems that we have is when you have high iron levels and poor soil structure, you will have a lot of problems with grasses. Rhizome-based grasses just proliferate in this kind of condition with the high iron like that. And so, uh, if you want to get rid of that problem, you've got, and you have excessive iron, uh, you're not going to bring the iron level down, but bringing the manganese level up to where it needs to be can alleviate a lot of that, and making sure that the porosity of that soil is really good. Um, okay. The next trace element is manganese. Um, not to be confused with magnesium. Uh, I've had several instances where people have applied magnesium instead of manganese when I was, it was recommended, even though I said manganese. Um, they went to the fertilizer place and the guy said, oh yeah, that's, that, that's the same as magnesium. And so they applied the wrong thing. But it's manganese, not magnesium, that we're talking about here. It also acts with iron in chlorophyll formation. It speeds seed germination and crop maturity. If you have poorly germinating seed, there's a good chance that the manganese level in that seed is not very good. Because it's actually the charge on that manganese that actually starts activating the whole growth process. It's one of the things that you know, actually initiates life in that seed. And um, if your seed, you put it, if you want a uniform stand to come out of the ground, if you have really good manganese levels, have you ever had stuff come up and it comes up a little here and it comes up a little there? It's very erratic. Well, your manganese levels are probably not high enough. Uh, when you get it high enough, it just all comes out of the ground at the same time and into a uniform stand and looks beautiful. It speeds seed germination and crop maturity. It helps in the uptake of other nutrients, um, particularly potassium is a big one on that. Uh, it is also the second key to stalk strength, giving the resilience to, and the strength to a stem. And um, desired value, it usually runs between um, half of what iron is to two-thirds of what iron is. You always want it less than, less than iron. If manganese ever goes higher than iron in the soil, 
When they are up taken up in the plant, manganese, if you did a leaf analysis, it would show that you had adequate iron. But what happens is the manganese oxidizes the iron in the plant and makes it unavailable. And so it's not functional in the plant anymore. So you never want manganese higher than iron. Um, so you always want it at only half to two-thirds of whatever iron level you have, up to 240 parts per million. At 250, you move into, it's too high. But on grain crops like wheat, the highest yielding fields have uh, manganese levels of between 200 and 250. And I'm talking about double, yield, double yields. Uh, you're talking about three, 400 bushels to the acre of, of yield. Um, when you get up, given if everything else is good, you know, not just having manganese that way. Because you cannot, on these trace elements, remember I said you can't raise these to their optimum levels until you've got good balance in your major cations. Once you have good balance in your major cations, then I, I push them up the high, and you'll see on copper when we get there, we go even higher. Um, and I'll tell you what the results are. Um, the source, again, is the, is the reduced form, the sulfate form, manganese sulfate. Sometimes you'll see it as a 28%. Um, 32 percent is the mined uh, source um, and it's the preferred source, but the 28 percent works okay too. I just didn't put that on there. The deficiency symptoms are intervenal chlorosis with small necrotic spots on young leaves. So it's, it occurs on the young leaves just like iron does and sometimes people confuse the two, but you'll get these little necrotic spots a lot, a lot of times. It'll be, a, it'll be a more pronounced, it's more like little circles of, of chlorosis rather than the whole uh, intervenal space being, being uh, chlorotic. So that's how I tell it. You, if you saw the two, I don't have pictures of it. I need to put pictures on these slides of what these deficiency symptoms look like. But if you saw the two side by side and you knew that you, you've seen them before, you, I can tell manganese from iron most of the time because the way the chlorosis happens in between the veins is a little bit different. Um, and excesses, it inhibits calcium and magnesium uptake. Um, it interferes with that. And the potential oxidation, as I mentioned, of iron in the plant. And manganese should never be higher than iron. Now, another problem for manganese, we're going to go back to the potassium and sodium again. If sodium and potassium add up to more than 10% of the saturation, in other words, if more than 10% of the bucket is filled with potassium and magnesium, it will begin blocking out manganese. And you could have adequate manganese levels in the soil and you will not get enough. Again, the balance is very important. You don't want to get carried away with stuff. Um, we had problems with manganese when I was out in Colorado because we had 13% just in potassium. We had 13% saturation. And another thing that I didn't bring up with it, if you've got weed pressure, when you have high potassium saturation, you will have wheat seed germination coming out your ears. And we would go and we would cultivate, and you come out the next morning, and, and it looked like we didn't do anything. Everything rooted back in. It just started growing again when you get high potassium levels like that. So again, one of the keys to weed control, you know, reducing weed pressure is making sure your potassium levels are at the levels they're supposed to be at. Because when they're really high, they stimulate germination. And so just everything and its brother wants to grow in, in your soil. And there's a, a million weed seeds per square foot of soil, by the way. That's a battle you'll never win, I promise you. Those million weed seeds. So you've got to figure out you know, how to overcome that battle by employing the right character in that soil. Um, let, let me share this here real quick. 
Um, plants, when they germinate, they begin putting an exudate out of their roots to suppress germination. So they're, they're going to suppress, within their sphere, they're going to suppress competition. And they put this exudate out, and in a, in a, poorly, in a poor fertility soil, that suppression lasts for three to four or five days. Not long enough. In a fertile, healthy soil, that suppression lasts for four to six weeks. And so it allows that plant to take root, to grow up, canopy the soil, begin blocking out the light, the access to light, to anything else to germinate in there. So this is another key to reducing your, your weed pressure. You know, is having, you know, yes, all plants like fertile soil. And you have to know that they're there and they're going to want to express themselves. So you give that, those plants that you deliberately put there the help it needs by, you know, when they're in the white root stage, you don't wait for them to be weeds. I teach my kids that we, you need to learn how to cultivate not weed. Cultivation is easy. Weeding is hard work because when it gets up to those weeds are that big and you're having to pull them out and chop them out and everything, it's a lot harder than when they're in the white root stage and you know they're coming, don't wait for them to take over. Go in there and you do that cultivation while you, and, and usually if you do that, when we do that one cultivation, if we do it right, if we timed it right, we won't have to do it again. It'll just be a spot thing here and there and, and we'll, have to, we'll just go take care of that. Um, when we need to. But again, this is why I didn't include the class on insects, diseases, and weeds because we really cover the solution to that and all the other things that we're talking about here. And so with the time constraints that we had, I just figured we'd just put those things in as we went. So that's, again, one of those ways that you reduce weed pressure is by having a balanced soil and being mindful of the conditions that are there and giving that plant the opportunity to thrive and express itself. Okay, we're going to do copper now. Um, the roles of copper, it's part of several enzyme systems. Remember those enzyme and hormone systems I told you about? Some of these other trace elements are too, by the way. And, and what happens, what causes disease and pest pressure? I'll just add this one here too. If you're missing one of these, in any of the metabolic cycles that are required, there's not enough there, then you begin accumulating other resources that are part of that process. So it could be amino acids you begin accumulating because they're not built into the peptides and the proteins. It could be a lot of different things where you have incomplete compounds because the process didn't work itself. It didn't finish itself. It wasn't completed. Um, and so you begin accumulating like scab on apple. I don't know if anybody grows apples here. Apple scab is related to an accumulation of arginine, the amino acid of arginine in the, in the tissue. It's not being built into uh, complete proteins because all of the components are not there to take it and finish it into what it's supposed to be. And if we were to start looking at all different kinds of problems, you start seeing that this is the case. There's an incomplete and imbalanced system going on here and something is not working the way it's supposed to work. The hormone systems are not right or the enzyme systems are not right. Um, okay, so disease resistance. We grow a lot of berries. I love berries. We grow strawberries, we grow blackberries, we grow blueberries, we grow black raspberries. Um, we, we love berries and berries uh, and grapes. Berries have a lot of problem with fungal issues. But it's because, well, again, you have to do the major stuff. That's why we do the trace elements last. You have to do the major things first. But if the copper levels are what they should be, the, the fungal diseases disappear. And it's not just on berries. And you'll see, I'm going to talk about the desired value here in a minute. But copper plays a major role in disease resistance. Have you heard of Bordeaux mixture before that people spray on fruit trees? You know what's in Bordeaux mixture? 
Well, copper is a big, it's usually copper hydroxide that they put in it, calcium sometimes in it, sometimes they put sulfur in it. Really, basically there's a, there's a phytotoxic reaction with the hydroxide, the copper hydroxide, but really ultimately what you're doing is you're providing nourishment to the tree. You're providing the copper that it needs, you're providing the calcium and the, and the sulfur if they just happen to be ones you put into your, your blend of it. Um, so it has disease resistance. It also helps to control moisture, moisture control. And it is the third key to stalk strength. We were just talking in between about if you have tomatoes that split, but, um, but she was talking about that they had a lot of rainfall this past winter and the trees started cracking, splitting open. Now it could be just um, that there's excessive uh, water that they're not used to, but a lot of times you'll see that splitting happen when there's not enough calcium because calcium is actually what gives the, the flexibility. You know, when you have bend a branch over and it comes back up, that's copper. It gives it that flexibility to bend over and come back up. And it's also critical in collagen formation in people. So, you know, it, it keeps your skin taut, your blood vessels, it allows them to be able to flex and come back into, in, into shape and everything. And when you don't have enough of it, um, you pre and, and also, well, the symptoms of it in people is premature graying, you lose color like sheep do, if you've ever seen sheep, and they, they go to that gray, wiry color, it's copper deficiency. Um, uh, and premature wrinkling of your skin, because the collagen is not being properly you know, manufactured in sufficient quantities. Uh, and aneurysms, strokes, you know, that's, a, that's a, a, a weak point in the blood vessel because the collagen was not properly constructed there. And it tears, tears at that place. So when you see tears in fruit, and um, like splits and stuff, one of, the, one of the culprits might be, one of the suspects might be deficiency of copper in, in that case. Um, sources are copper sulfate, again the sulfate form, it's tw usually 23 to 25 percent, most of the time it's 25 percent copper sulfate is the source for it. There is a limit, again, on these trace elements there's a limit to how much you should do at any one time. Um, I don't usually put on more than 35 pounds of 25% copper sulfate at one time. That's the maximum I do. There's times when people need more than that, but I don't usually do more than that. Uh, another source is turkey compost. Why turkey compost? Turkeys are highly susceptible. They don't, they don't process copper very well. They're highly susceptible to aneurysms. In fact, before they figured this out, the people raising turkeys were losing 75% of their flock to aneurysms because they're so susceptible to it. They supplement copper in turkey feed. And so if you get the manure, the, com the manure or compost from turkey feed, it's just like the, the, the calcium in, in laying hens, the oyster shell, most of it goes through. Well, most of the copper goes through, so the copper levels are fairly high in turkey compost. And so if, you want to, if you're close to a turkey operation and you can get the compost, it's a great source, a cheap source of getting the copper. They're, paying the, they're spending the money to put the copper on. And copper is the, the most expensive of the, the, major, the major trace elements, I would say. It's the most ex expensive source. So you're usually looking at, in U.S., it's, uh, you know, you're looking at $2 a pound for it. You don't use huge amounts of it, but relative per pound, it's pretty expensive. Um, so turkey compost, if you have access to it, is a, is a good source of copper. Um, now, the desire down here, the value down here is 5 to 10. On all my berries, I go to 20. Um, 
and I have no problem whatsoever with copper toxicity or anything like that. And I have no problem whatsoever with fungal diseases at all, at all. I don't have to spray anything. I don't have to be concerned with, with any of that. Um, and most commercial berry growers, by the way, actually do that. They'll, they'll push their, their copper levels up to 15 to 20 parts per million um, because of that in order to avoid. Now, they still have some problems. They have less because they don't have other things straightened out the way they need to have them straightened out on that. Um, so, but you can't do that. I wouldn't do that until I had everything else, all the major stuff right before I would ever. But like I said, when you start taking the traces and you start, when you're able to start bringing them up to express themselves at a higher level, that's when a lot of things radically change in, in your growing system for the better. A lot of problems just go away and you never see them again. An interesting thing about this, most of these trace elements, once you get them in the right levels that you need to be at, I, said, I shared it with somebody earlier, um, you, won't, you won't touch them again for 20 years. I mean, they're, they're, you don't, it's not, a lot of it's not used up in the, in the growing process. And so you just, it just stays that way for a long, long, long time. The problem is the reason we're, and a lot of soils are really deficient in copper. The reason it is because they started out deficient and they've been extracted year after year after year, decade after decade until it's to the point where there's just not enough of it there anymore. And we resort to interventions because we don't want to address the problem and solve it. We resort to all kinds of chemicals to, to kill off the fungus. And everything has its food source, by the way. And most of these fungal organisms, when the plant is healthy, the plant's actually feeding them. Do you know that? Uh, how many people like tomatoes? How many people grow tomatoes? Um, does anybody have a problem with early blight? You know what causes early blight? It's the Altenaria. It's a, it's a leaf-dwelling fungal organism. Altenaria, I can't remember the second name of it. Um, the plant actually feeds that Altenaria, ex puts energy, exudates out to that Altenaria, and feeds it because that Altenaria protects the leaf and actually gives compounds back to the plant that are beneficial. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. So what happens? Why all of a sudden does the Altenaria start damaging the plant? Well, it always happens when the plant goes to transition from vegetative growth to reproductive growth. The mandate is to bear fruit, and so the plant is going to follow that mandate even if it's detrimental to, the, to the, the plant itself. And so it starts pulling the resources to start producing the seed or the fruit, and it, it, there's, if there's not enough there to maintain both, not enough to maintain the plant and, the, and produce the fruit or the seed, um, the plant then becomes short. It cuts off the exudates going out to the leaf, and it starts pulling resources out of the leaf. It sends a signal to the Altenaria that this plant is now dying. And so the Altenaria begins eating the plant, and you have early blight. If that plant was fully nourished through that whole process, that would never happen. And again, we could talk about dozens and dozens of these kind of conditions where if the, if the growing conditions, if the fertility was sufficient, the soil was constructed right, this, these things would not happen and we'd never even have to address them. So again, you come back to seek ye first, the what? The kingdom of heaven. It's, it's address the character first and all the other things work themselves out and work themselves out. And we don't have to, we fight, we, we spend too much time and energy fighting off death. In other words, we're fighting sin and rather fostering life. We're not fostering life and, and encouraging life. We're trying to fight off dying. 
And that's a losing battle. You never win it that way because it just continues to go downhill. Okay, deficiency symptoms. Young leaves wilt. So up in the, up in the growing tip, you know, if you see that wilting, it could be just you're not putting enough water on. Um, but if you see a persistent wilting and you have watered and everything, that's a pretty good indication of uh, copper deficiency. Growing tip will wilt. Um, it'll have a weak stem tip and you'll get a lot of disease pressure um, as a result of that. Excesses of copper, it inhibits root growth and it also can suppress other nutrients particularly in the trace elements. Zinc is one of those ones that it can suppress um, and become a problem. Okay, now we're gonna look at the last one of the trace elements we're gonna go into detail on. We're gonna look at a couple other things a little bit. But zinc, its roles are, it's part of many enzyme systems. There's at least 300 enzyme systems that zinc is involved in. At least 300. And that's being conservative. So you can, you can imagine if you don't have enough zinc, uh, in, your, in your body or in the plant, you're going to run into a lot of problems with it. It is also involved in water use efficiency. Um, it helps the more, the, the more efficient use of water, so you want to be sure you have potassium and zinc at good levels if you're in a, a climate that's drier where you don't have reliable rainfall or, or access to water. Having those two at optimum levels allows the plant to more efficiently use water. Um, and it's essential for non-symbiotic nitrogen-fixing azotobacters. The, the, the free-living bacteria that fix nitrogen have to have the zinc. So if you're shooting for that, that's another one you need to address. Zinc uh, sources are, again, the reduced form, the sulfate form of zinc, which is typically 36%. Sometimes they have it at 35.5%. Um, desired value, I want to touch on this again here. What I have realistically, I have 6 to 20. 6 is the minimum you should have. 20 is generally the maximum. Um, if you look at some books like the Ideal Soil, they, they do it as a ratio, but there's a maximum point. Actually, they have a maximum point in there too, and it might be similar because um, they're analyzing it in a different way. So, um, Zinc rises with phosphate, with phosphorus. Zinc and phosphorus are highly antagonistic to each other, but they're highly important to each other. Um, and so as your, your phosphate levels rise to where you want them to, you need to be sure that your, your zinc levels rise with it. And so if you go up to the optimum levels of phosphate at 750 pounds, um, you want to be at 20 parts per million on zinc to, to, to balance that out and offset it. And you'll get maximum benefit from the zinc, you'll get maximum benefit from the phosphorus if you do that. And that's another one of those things I have to determine how much are we going to put on because how much phosphorus is there, how much can I actually do, how aggressive can I be. You might be deficient in it and I can only do so much because you know I can't get, I can't get ahead of the, the phosphorus or it'll cause antagonism and cause a problem. I have growers that have excessive zinc levels and are deficient in phosphorus and their biggest problem is phosphate deficiency in their plants because it's being, it's being suppressed by the zinc. Even though you know at 20 parts per million that's only 40 pounds in a 2 million pound plow layer per acre, 40 pounds, and yet it can suppress that, uh, in that small quantity, can suppress the uptake of, of phosphorus, the availability of phosphorus. Okay, excesses are induced deficiencies, which is one of the ones I just talked about, and porous photosynthesis, because it's involved in the Krebs cycle um, in so many places that if, if it's not adequately there, you don't get the energy produced in that Krebs cycle 
that you don't get the energy out of it that you should get out of it, and then you have a, uh, it interferes with the effectiveness of the photosynthesis. Okay, we're going to look at, not everybody tests these, not everybody cares. I think that you should care about these two things because they're, they're vital to proper nitrogen metabolism. Uh, and for fixing, actually fixing nitrogen. I think it's the natural way that nitrogen should be made available to the plants, um, but most people are not in a position where that is successfully happening. It's needed by nitrogen-fixing bacteria and it's required to make protein. Um, a lot of times when, when you have problems with things that are related to insect pressure and disease pressure on a plant, it's because of molybdenum deficiency, not because you don't have enough nitrogen there. Nitrogen gets into the plant, but it doesn't get properly metabolized and built into protein. And so, like, you know, you guys know what aphids are? Um, typically, a lot of times, see them on the growing tip. Well, there's rapid growth going on there. There's a lot of free nitrogen coming into that growing tip, and it's not being metabolized fast enough. It's not being built into proteins, to complex compounds fast enough. Aphids cannot eat complex proteins. They can only eat nitrogen, free nitrate. And so they go to that growing tip because they smell that free nitrate there. If, if proper uh, making a protein was going on, proper metabolism, a lot of times if you put a foliar molybdenum on, which you have to be very, very careful, you'll, you'll see because a little goes a long, long way. But if you, sometimes if you apply a foliar molybdenum, it'll clear the aphid problem up because the, the protein, the nitrogen metabolism gets to where it's supposed to be. And uh, you don't, they, they can't eat it anymore, so they move on. That's the simple reality. They, they have to have the, the free nitrate. If they can't get it, they can't eat the complex compound. That's why we eat uh, whole foods, by the way, instead of refined foods. Because whole foods tend to uh, give us whole bodies. And the attraction, there's no attraction by a lot of the disease organisms because there's nothing for them to feed on. We give them all kinds of things to feed on when we eat a lot of refined foods and then we have a lot of health problems as a result of that. You can avoid that by, by not giving them the food source. Um, the source, primary source is sodium molybdate. You can also use ammonium molybdate, which I think is a 40-something percent, I don't remember what it is, but the most common source is sodium molybdate, which is 39% molybdenum. The desired value is one to two parts per million out of two, that's two to four pounds out of two million pounds. That's all you need. It's two to four pounds for it to effectively do its job. Um, one of the things you need to be really careful of with molybdenum, if you're deficient in copper, you cannot apply molybdenum until you've got the copper there because it'll tie up whatever copper is there and things will start dying as a result, particularly if you're raising animals. Um, you, know, you can kill them uh, by putting the molybdenum on and you're deficient in copper. Um, you can only put on, in this case, about seven and a half ounces per acre at one time. Seven and a half ounces, that's a little less than 0.2 pounds of, of molybdenum at one time. And you can't even do that two years in a row. Say you're deficient, you know you need, you're, gonna, you, you're gonna need to apply molybdenum you know, two, three times to even get close. Well, the first year you do seven and a half ounces, the second year you do five ounces, and the third year you wait even though you're not where you need to be yet because it needs to have the time to integrate in to, to the system and you can get yourself into trouble with a very little bit in a big hurry. Um, this is another one that I did never stopped putting the warning on. I, I highlighted it in all capitals and I highlighted it in yellow and I say, 
do not apply unless required, calcium, uh, required copper is applied, if there's a condition where the copper is deficient, because you will kill stuff, uh, particularly animals, um, if, if that's the case. You'll just have, with plants, you're gonna have a lot of, you're gonna have a lot of disease pressure because it's gonna tie up the copper, and you, if you're already in a deficient state, you're gonna have a lot more disease pressure as a result of that. Okay, and the deficiency symptoms are whip tail, I, I, I don't know if you've ever seen on, on um, like broccoli or is cauliflower, you see it a lot more in, where the, the leaves are really thin and you got a small leaf up on the top and it kind of curls around, but it's a really skinny leaf instead of the big broad leaf that, like you, you would normally have. They call it whip tail because it looks like a little skinny tail with a little leaf on the end of it. Um, that's the most common deficiency symptom you see, and you see it a lot in the brassicas particularly. It's where you see it a lot. Um, and the ex excess is copper tie-up. That's your biggest problem with excessive molybdenum is copper tie-up, which can be ha really hazardous. Okay, I didn't, I didn't realize I had uh, molybdenum separated out like that. I should have had cobalt. The other, these are some other beneficial elements. They're not the only beneficial elements. I'm just mentioning them because they do have uh, pretty significant importance. Cobalt, which we've talked about part, partly, is essential for nitrogen fixation and cobalamin, which is uh, B12 formation. Um, I know people tell you all the time, and I'll give you the caveat again, that I'm not telling you to just go out and drop your B12 supplementation or however you're getting it, but what I am saying to you is people say that it's not possible to get, on a, on a plant-based diet, it's not possible to get B12, and I tell you it is possible, but you have to have the conditions in order for that to happen. You have to have the cobalt in the soil and you have to have good soil biological activity. The, the cyanobacteria will produce the B12 and the plant will take it up. It doesn't need it, but we do. And you discover that God's system is interdependent. And so people ignore stuff, you know, people that are growing plants that don't need something, they just ignore the things that the animals and the people need. And you know, remember I talked about the aluminum. Well, the aluminum is not a nutritive element, it's a structural element that facilitates the nutritive elements being made available. Then when we separate stuff out, we, when we compartmentalize it, we lose sight of the fact that it's a mutualistic system that's designed for the big picture to, to, to um, create and increase life. And so you can't look at it in those separated ways, and most people do. Um, chlorine is also essential. It's required for photosynthesis. You don't need a lot of it, but you do need chlorine. A lot of growers, the cheapest source of, of potassium is potassium chloride. It's got a tremendous amount of chlorine in it, and it, it is very destructive. It kills the biology in the soil um, at the levels that's going on, and it also damages the, the colloidal clay in the soil, uh, reducing the capacity of that soil to hold fertility. And you're seeing this, and it orphans, what it does when it damages that, it orphans a bunch of nutrition, nutritional elements making the crop grow and, and looking like things are growing well, but in the end, Next go around, you don't have as much to resource. So they go in and they damage some more and make a little more available. And it's just because it's a cheap source, but it, potassium sulfate is a much better source because you need the sulfur and the potassium anyway. Um, but you know, chlorine, you get it in other things too, like sulpomag, if you're using that, there's chlorine, some chlorine in that, so you'll get it in that. If you're using sea minerals, you're getting into that. But the, it's incidental in some other things too. So you usually have enough. So, and there, there are cases where it's deficient though, and you actually need to apply some sodium chloride or another source of uh, just a little bit of potassium chloride or something. Um, nickel is needed by some plants for proper nitrogen utilization. 
Um, honestly, I don't think we really understand the complete picture of any of these things. We just know what we know, and we know at least it's essential to some extent because of that. Um, I could talk about selenium uh, for proper muscle, uh, white muscle uh, construction in particular. Um, I don't even have that one up here. Uh, it, yeah, it's one you have to be careful with because some parent soils have a lot of selenium in them, and if you were to just add it randomly without doing an analysis to find out whether you actually had it or not, you could do, you could do harm again with that because it is toxic in higher levels. Um, silicon, I talked about that before, it's one of the most prolific elements on the planet, and yet more and more deficiencies are showing up. And it's because it's not being released, it's not being made available because the biology is being killed off. Um, if you grow watermelons, has anybody ever told you you have to grow watermelons on sandy soil? Has anybody been told that before? Said you have to grow it on sandy soil. Well, you know why they tell you that? We actually have a, a, a breeder, they have a catalog that sells you know, mostly watermelon seed and melon seed, and in the catalog, they say to not plant watermelons on the same ground every year because there's something in the soil that's not readily replaced that um, is depleted and the, the melons won't grow well again the next year. Well, it's silicon. And the reason sandy soils are better for melons is because they have higher levels of silicon. That's what sand is. Um, so they have higher levels. I grow great watermelons on a silt soil. It's not a sandy soil at all, but I have great silicon levels. I make sure I do on that. So you, it, it's, it's funny you have some of these things out there and people are not even really sure what they're talking about, but it's why they're, they're even doing it because uh, they never really invested enough energy into investigating and say, what is it? But it's silicon, and when you do that. By the way, I didn't mention, if you're growing watermelons and melons, copper will give you the sweetest melons you've ever had. Um, I do have an incident with that where uh, I had a guy who, we recommended the maximum, which was 35 pounds of copper. He needed a lot more, but um, recommended the maximum. We told him, you know, this will make the melon sweeter. Actually, he was told if you just put, if you can't afford that much, just put five or 10 pounds on. That'll make enough difference to, to make the melon sweeter. Well, you know how some people are. If some's good, more must be better. And, and the, we were, he was told to broadcast it. Well, he took 70 pounds, he doubled it, and he banded it underneath the row. All in, all in one spot. Now, he got away with this. I'm not recommending this. He got away with it because his calcium levels were good enough to control the expression of that copper. But in a lot of cases, he would have killed everything, putting it in that concentration all at one time. But it will very definitely give you sweeter melons. The other one, which most people wouldn't associate to it with it, is sulfur. Sulfur is required, if, you, if, you're not, if you're getting melons and they just are bland, they don't have any flavor, well it's copper and sulfur, you don't have enough of either one of them to, to really give the, the, the nice sweet flavor to, to the melons. So, yeah. A lot of um, organic garden enthusiasts are using crushed dust, which is crushed rock, mm -hmm. usually basalt rock, for right. elements, right. like silver and that sort of thing. Yeah. What's your take on that if it's um, good practice? Well, there's a, lot of there's a lot of mineral elements in the basalt rock, and so it's a good, it's a good way to add more um, parent stock to the soil, reserves to the soil. It doesn't readily break down rapidly, so it wouldn't be some, it's not gonna hurt anything. It, it's, it can, it's only gonna help by adding you know, uh, raw materials to the soil, but it's not gonna give you some, something in a short term, it's not gonna give you a short term benefit. So 
Yeah, it can be used. It can be used fine. I don't think there's any real hazards to using it. But it, you know, relative to what the value you're getting out of it, and it costs, I mean, it's heavy. And so if you have it locally, well, hey, yeah, it's, it's a great source. But if you're going to ship it a thousand miles, you're going to pay way more for the shipping cost than you're going to pay for the for the. It's pretty cheap the, because the, it's readily available. Landscape supplies. In yeah, because a lot of times when they're crushing rock, if it's a, if it's a basalt rock and they're crushing the rock, well, all the fines that that fall out, they clean that out, and that's what they're bagging. They're bagging the fines because they can't really do anything else with it. So yeah, it's a, it's to them, it's a waste product, and so they're just trying to get rid of it. So if they can. You know, if they can make some money off of it, they do. So yeah, I mean, it's fine. It's just, uh, it's not. Uh, it wouldn't be something that I would use to try to develop, you know, restore balance to, and completeness to the soil in a, you know, in a short-term fashion. Uh, but it certainly, you know, adds raw material to your ground that could be a potential resource later, or along the way. So. Okay, we made it. Yeah. Have a question. Yes, sir. Um, this is a very, maybe a very basic question, but you've been talking a lot about applying, applying these minerals, applying, applying. What's your favorite method of applying um, uh, before planting? And just say you get halfway through a crop um, and you realize there's, there's some deficiency, what's the best method of applying then? If you already have something growing there. Yeah. Um, I always, I prefer to apply stuff um, before planting and I usually prefer to apply it in the fall so it has time to begin integrating into the soil so when I plant in the spring it's already begun, it's already starting to be available um, to be beneficial to the, the crop. A lot of dry materials and I always tend to use dry materials because they're the least expensive way to apply those. A lot of people are moving to liquids. Um, because they're, they're, they're trying to minimize the, what they're spending and they're not really addressing the soil anymore. They're only addressing the crop. They just want to get the crop and so they're using a lot of liquids. It's, not, it's more expensive for the amount of resource you're getting out of it. It's very expensive to do it that way. I use those materials sometimes if, if the conditions are such that you know, we can't put enough dry material on at one time or it's, not, it's going to take longer than we need and we can we, we put those liquids on to make sure that the plant's going to have adequate till that other material becomes available. But I always use dry materials and I always recommend broadcast. You, know, you broadcast that material. So if, even if you have stuff growing there, it would be kind of where I, somebody would ask me, I'd say, okay, I've got stuff growing here, I need to do this already. Now, what should I do? Um, if you can put it on as a dry material, generally you're okay to do that. Um, so do you have a thing on the back of your tractor? Uh, yeah, well, I'm very particular about making sure that I get it adequately spread. And a, like a spinner spreader on the back of a tractor, there's the, I mean, if that's the best you can do, then that's the way you would spread it. But you need to know how far it's being thrown. And if you're blending materials, um, there, there's, there's hazards with it because if you're blending materials, they have different densities. And so as the, the, the tractor bounces across the field, and the spinner spinning, it separates that stuff out. And so the more dense stuff starts dropping to the bottom and the light stuff's to the top. And so if I do spread that way, I don't put a whole lot in at one time. I spread an area and then I put some more in and I spread an area and I put some more in. I don't try to put a whole bunch in and then go across the field because just um, the bouncing across the field will cause separation. And the, also the other issue you have is with throw. Um, more dense materials are gonna throw further. And so you're, you may not get uniform coverage um, of all the materials. Uh, you can go to a drop spreader, 
and drop it out, but even that can separate out depending on the kind of materials. You can, you can put you know, finer materials into a drop spreader, um, but you have to be sure you um, make sure it doesn't bridge. What I mean by that, uh, you can, the, the agitators in there agitate and all of a sudden you have this big hole in there and it's just bridged across and the stuff's not dropping. Um, if you're going to spread it off the back of a tractor, a pendulum spreader works much better. It's way more accurate. You can, you can cal calibrate the throw on it so it's exactly the distance you want and then you can calibrate it to how much material is coming out. So, if you're small scale, I just use a hand spreader that I can put on. It's like it's got straps and I can put on the front and I walk along. We grow in bed systems, so we, you know, I calculate how much I need. I know how much that thing throws, how far it throws. So um, we usually cover 12 feet, two six foot centered beds with one, pa you know, one pass walking. I use a little hand spreader too, depending on how much material I'm supposed to be needing to apply. But I'm very particular about getting it on accurately. I know how much difference it makes to get it accurate. And well, sometimes it takes more time. And we, we're scaling back, further and further back into smaller scale. Because I, my belief is that we should have more people out there doing some, and not just a few people doing a lot. It's, it's much easier, well, it's, it's a lot more stable to have more people involved. Because if somebody goes out or somebody fails or whatever, well, you still have a broader base there. It's always better to have a broader base than it is. Um, and so you're able to manage it better too. In a smaller scale like that, you're able to manage it better and you can become more productive. We have, we have guys in the states, growers in the states, on one, and a half, one to one and a half acres, less than a hectare, generating you know, several hundred thousand dollars a year. Because they're and their management is really good. Like a lot of some of them are growing green greens. They're in the field 30 days. They transplant it in. They have means of like with paper pot transplanter. They have means of, of planting it, transplanting it in. It's only in that bed for 30 days, and it's out. And they got another one in, and they get they turn six, eight crops out of the same square footage a year on some of these crops. So um, they grow. You mean when you're preparing the bed? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's different ways of doing that. You can um, you can use a tiller. You can use um, rakes. Depends on your scale. And the one guy that's making so much. There's one guy with an acre and a half making three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. He uses no power tools at all. It's all hand tools that they use to prepare their beds. They use what's called a tilter. It actually uses a, a battery-powered drill. And it mounts to this thing called a tilter, and they go up and just um, just till. The, the, they broad fork it. Have you guys have seen a broad fork before? Yeah. Yeah. They broad fork it to get the deep opening, and then uh, they use the tilter to just get a seedbed. And then this guy uses a concrete roller. He just for it's using for concrete rolling a double roller for screeding, and he just rolls the bed to, to, to firm it down with that, and then they go in and they they seed or they transplant a lot of now they're just doing the starts in a greenhouse and then they're transplanting in so that their ground is not tied up in the germination and initial growth process so they cut the time in a, a half that the plant the crop has to be in the ground so a lot of it comes down to management how well you manage the time and the space that you have we grow a lot of stuff up and intensively um, a lot of it has to do with fertility I, who was I started sharing with somebody um, we have really wealthy people around us and we have really poor people around us. And I'm happy to sell to the wealthy people who think they have a lot of money to, to pay me. Um, uh, you know, I don't, what I ask for is fair. I'm not, you know, 
just because they're wealthy, I'm not taking advantage of them. But there are a lot of poor people who can't afford that. And so my, uh, my motivation is how can I increase production to the point where I can affordably provide nourishment to those people? And one of the illustrations, remember I said the blueberries, well, it's a whole lot more, it's a whole lot more possible to be profitable if you're producing 40 pounds to the plant instead of five. Um, and I shared with somebody, I don't remember who it was, the, the record holder for potato, the, the, the quantity of potatoes from one plant, anybody want to take a guess at what it is? The average commercial yield in the States is about two pounds per plant. Anyone want to take a guess what the record is? The guy that holds the record? And his was still, I'll, I'll tell you this, his was still going up. His yields were still going up, but he just got bored of doing it because nobody was even, he told everybody what he was doing and, and still nobody would compete with him. So he just got tired of doing it. He said, fine. You want to, did anyone want to just venture your guess? 12 pounds. How, 12 pounds? Anybody else? 20? We got the bidding going now. Okay, we're up to 100. 100 pounds is what it was. 100 pounds per plant. 50 times the normal yield. 50 times. Now look, let me just, let's just put it this way. Okay, forget the 100 pounds. What if you could just increase it to four? What if you could just double the yield to four? Well, how much more profitable can you be or how much easier would it be to make it affordable to people who didn't have a lot of money to eat? I know a lot of people are going after the wealthy people with the, with the, with the boutique vegetables and the, the fashionable stuff and everything, and I don't have a problem with that. Um, if you want to do that, sure, everybody needs to be nourished and everybody needs to be reached. Um, but that's not going to last forever, and it's not going to feed the vast majority of people with, with staple nourishment. And so I always tell them, go for that, but you better be at the same time preparing to be able to be productive. Um, so that you can actually make food available, to, you can actually still help people uh, when they need it. How did that farmer increase his yield by 50 times? Are we out of time? Oh, 10 minutes, okay. All right. What he did was he took his seed potato and he soaked it in a 25% kelp solution for 24 hours. And then he drained the kelp solution and let them dry out and he put them in storage. And then 30 days later, he took them out and soaked them in a 25% kelp solution again. And then he dried them out and put them back in storage. And he did that all winter long until it came time to plant. When it came time to plant, he soaked them in the kelp solution again, put them in the ground, and then he fertilized them with foliar kelp and enzymatically digested fish. And he produced 100 pounds per plant. Now, most people. The reason he never got any competition because nobody, would, nobody was really motivated enough to put the effort out that he put out to do that. So if somebody could set up a, an efficient system of being able to do that, you know, you could, you could increase the yields. But let me just say that just by increasing the, the, the balance and completeness of the, the soil's condition, the fertility, you're going to get higher yields. You're going to get higher yields than two pounds. You're going to get four to five pounds and probably even more. Um, so that's the objective, is how can we, we, we can, you know, provide more abundance. Because the day's going to come when people didn't prepare, they didn't think about anything in advance, and what are they going to do? Is, is anybody going to be there to grab their hand and pull them, out, pull them out of the rushing stream? And I'm not just talking about the mainstream culture, I'm talking about Adventists too. You know, people that are just simply not even mindful in preparing for any of this. Is there going to be any cities of refuge for people to go to? Um, and so, 
When, when I talk about this, I'm not just talking about making a living. I'm talking about making a life, and it's, it's, about, it's more than just, you know, how much can I grow? It's not only that, can, what can I learn from it? What can I teach other people from the principles that are involved in it? You know, and how can I minister to other people via that so that souls can be one? Because that's our mission as a church, not just to be farmers or any other vocation or profession. It's to, it's to, it's to, to spread the gospel in whatever means that is appropriate to be able to spread it. And I was sharing with somebody earlier that, honestly, I think that food is a wide-open door for the church right now. It's a wide-open door. Regrettably, but I was going to say regrettably, we're not really prepared to go through that door. But I am encouraged because, you know, Rod, you know, putting the effort into to having this conference to really encourage it along. We've got that going on in the States. Now there's one uh, wanting to happen in Germany, in Europe, and everything. And so um, that tells me that God is raising it up. Because when you see the same thing start to happen in multiple places, it's not just somebody's fancy. It's, you know, it's the Holy Spirit bringing about what needs to happen to. Um, so, and by the way, you will never gain everything from agriculture if you don't pursue all of those things. One of the mistakes that our institutions make when they try to incorporate agriculture in is they're just looking for a money-making um, industry. They're not, looking for, they're not looking for education. They're not looking for ministry, um, any of those things. And, and sometimes they're not even looking for nourishment. I had an issue where um, staff, I was, one of my objectives was to make sure that there was nutritious food. You know, if you're working in an institution, half the time you're, you're wearing 20 hats uh, and, and worn out and everything. So my priorities was to make sure we're nourished ourselves. You can't help. It's like when they tell you on the airplane to make sure you put the oxygen mask off before you put it on anybody else's. You know, if you're not, we're not mindful of anything or anybody else if we're struggling to keep our own head above water. It's only when we, be, we become mindful of other people and the world around us when we become pressed down and overflowing. And we're looking for, you know, how, who, who can we share this with? Who can we tell us, that, tell us to? Um, rather than just don't give me any hassles. I, I just can't handle any more than, um, so that, uh, that's what we need. Also, God's way does not produce more, but it produces it quicker. Not help two people get avocado within 12 months. Wow. So you don't have to wait five years. Yeah. Well, that's the objective. How, you know, when, when I said before that there are ways to learn from nature, and I don't tell people not to do that. Excuse me. I don't tell people not to do that. I'm just saying if we have a, a, the means of speeding that process up, of accelerating that process, we don't have the luxury of a lot of time. I mean, maybe I'm the only one that notices that, but things are getting... One of the things you'll notice in society, and maybe it's just me that notices this, but everything is becoming more and more erratic, more and more unstable, because the buffers that were designed into life are being destroyed. The buffers in the natural systems are being destroyed. The buffers in our, in our bodies and in our minds are being destroyed. And so you, you just have this erratic behavior. You see weather becoming more and more erratic. Well, it's not buffered anymore. There, you know, water buffers temperature. Well, vegetation is a moisture sink. And moisture buffers temperature, and temperature buffers wind. And if you want things to become stable and balanced, you have to have a complete and balanced condition. And the more 
more of those buffers are destroyed, the more erratic it becomes. And, we're, and remember I said that across all these disciplines, you're seeing the same thing. Economically, things are becoming more and more erratic. Um, socially, they're becoming more and more erratic. Every discipline in life. And the same tactics are being used in every single one of them. Stimulate them, stimulate them, stimulate them, but don't ever nourish them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, isn't that what's happening? Yes. We've got more and more stimulation, and it's, it's not just you know, foods, you just, let me tell you this one because people get, uh, I need this to be clearly understood. If I said salt, fat, and sugar, what would you think? Junk food? What, what, that would be what you thought, right? You know, junk food? Yeah. The, the, the most nutritious foods have the highest salt content. And when I say salts, I don't mean just sodium chloride. I mean calcium, potassium, magnesium. All of the salts have the highest salt content, they have the highest fat content, and they have the highest sugar content. Actually higher in some cases than the junk food that has it just added with... What's the difference? You're getting everything with it. God intended food to be a, a wonderful experience. He didn't intend it to be something that was a chore that we had to sit down, okay, we've got to eat again. No, it was supposed to be a wonderful experience. Social relationships, it's supposed to be a wonderful thing. Well, it's turned into a curse. I mean, I don't think men and women can hardly get along with each other anymore. You know, half the time you, you see that this, this happening and everything. But they're redefining what it means to be a man. They're redefining what it means to be a woman. The expectations are not realistic. And then, of course, you take and stimulate. You give them the, the most stimulating things of, of, social, of relationships. You put out there the most stimulating things and the expectations become unrealistic. I mean, uh, and they just have to have more and more. That's the problem with stimulants. You just have to have more and more because it doesn't ever nourish you. It, it only stimulates. It's like whipping a, that, that whipping a tired horse phenomenon where, um, you know, eventually the horse just falls over and dies. And we are on the, we are on the brink of a, a crisis. I can see when the Bible talks about a time of trouble that has never been seen before. We're on the brink of a crisis like that. Because even though tremendous resilience was built into life, we have pretty much bankrupted it. And so the ability to buffer the, the violence being done against life is, is almost non-existent anymore. And when it collapses, everything's going to collapse. Because um, it can't handle, I don't know if I talked about this, but you know, well, we're still going to talk about it tomorrow. Um, the environmental influences on, on life. There's the soil, the soil, and then there's the environmental influences. And that's part of the other half of the growing system. We're going to talk about that. But we have hidden hunger. We don't notice it until stress hits our life. And when the stress hits, well, what happens to plants when the, the temperature goes too high, or the moisture level's too high, the humidity's too high, or, or it's not enough? what starts happening? All of a sudden the diseases start showing up and the, and the pest damage starts showing up. Why? Because um, that stress just elevated. It, well, I'm going to talk about this Friday, about what organic growth really is. But it just pushed the capacity of that system to maintain stability. It just pushed it over the edge. And, and it, cannot, it can't maintain it anymore. So we go along in our lives and we think everything is okay until we all of a sudden hit a crisis. And then we've really find out, no, it really wasn't okay. 
And that's the danger, you know, spiritually speaking, not just any other way. Spiritually speaking, we think we're okay. But are we actually nourished well enough so that when the pressure comes, when those stresses hit us and they hit us hard, I'm afraid a lot of people are just going to, they're just going to fold because they have no capacity not to fold. Um, and so we don't want to be, I'm actually on Friday, we're going to, I'm also going to talk about a phenomenon you can't see. Everything looks great, but things are dying, nevertheless. And so we have to go on principle. We have to, you know, we have to have some model, and then we have to employ that model. Um, it's like I said before, if I do, if a person sends a soil test in and I do recommendations, and it could be the greatest model and I can get the best recommendations, but if people don't, if the person doesn't up, apply it, employ it, it will not do any good. And that's, you know, that's our role when God reveals himself to us. You know, he gives us the prescription. This is the condition, this is your, this is your deficits, and this is your imbalances and excesses, and this is what you need to do to rectify that. And we don't do anything. Same thing, it, it, you know. God can't make us respond, but that's our part in the process. We wouldn't initiate it on our own. I mean, that's, I'm not saying that. We wouldn't initiate it on our own, but God initiates it. And then we can respond to it or not. It's a matter of what our understanding, what kind of spirit do we have towards it. It comes back today again. You know, do you think, you think God is actually trying to increase your life, to, to save your life, or is he just trying to make it hard? Um, anyway, we're probably out of time. Does anybody else have any other questions? Hmm? I'll put it out just in case. Okay. Um, going back to the practical, after we say you get a soil test and you show the, you know, the deficiencies, um, you know, most people buy trace elements as a combination, right? Um, so how do we, are there places, you know, of that is it really available for us to track down the various bits economically? Because like, Right. The question was, you know, how do you source if you only need a little bit of things? You know, you don't want to go buy a big bag of something if you've got a garden. I was speaking with somebody earlier about this, and this is a major dilemma because um, God is specific, but you know, in big agriculture, um, the big growers they use NPK and they use the cheapest source. And that's readily available anywhere agriculture is, is practiced. Um, and mom and pop in their garden, they just go to the garden center or the nursery and they buy a blend because that's convenient and they put it on. But they're not asking the question, do I need this? And part of the reason they do it is just because there's, there's no other convenient uh, access for them. And if, even if there was, and the reason there isn't one anymore, because nobody's actually being specific anymore. And so fertilizer companies used to carry all these different things. So the solution is, again, we really need to have an integrated infrastructure on this whole thing. Whether it's healthcare or ministry or agriculture, what we need, and we're actually working on this in the states because this is a major problem. I have people who cannot, and I, we would have a lot more gardeners participating, but you know, it just is not, it's, it's such a difficult thing for them, and they don't want to buy big bags of all these things when you only need a pound or something. So I've got a, I'm working with a couple of guys right now who are going to actually start 
inventorying those materials. They can buy it in larger quantities and then they're going to custom blend what the gardener needs. We'll, we'll give them, I'll give them the recommendation. What, what I'll do is I'll, I'll get the square footage and I'll say, okay, this is how much you need. And then they'll, they'll blend it, package it, and ship it to the person. We could have, just like health food, where we have distribution of that, we could have a person, you know, doing that in so, once a month or something on the key times of the year, just go to different places and drop it off and coordinate a little bit where people, it's like I was saying before, if you're going to ship soil samples overseas, we'll see who else needs to do that because it may be more economical to send them together than it is to, or to co-op together. I used to... So yeah, so working together to solve the problem. Get together, communicate with each other and figure out how can we solve this problem? How can we make it accessible, more accessible? And you know, people are willing to pay more for that and they're going to have to because it, you know, somebody has to do all that and it's taking their time and stuff. Um, and they're going to have to pay for the shipping and you know, sometimes the cost of those things is even more than the, the uh, materials are. But you know, it's worth it to them because it, it actually makes that much difference in what they actually get out of their garden. It, they get a return on that investment that it's in, is an increase, it's not, you know, it's not a loss. Um, so this is another thing, yeah, that where that kind of thing needs to be worked out. Who's going to step up and... and okay. Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, well we can be ended and if anybody has any other questions we can, it's, it's, um, it's time to be done. A, a menu? Um, yeah, I'm actually, uh, this is very stressful for me because I have such a burden for this and I get asked, can you come help us here? Can you come help us here? And I'm only one person. When we decided, when we had, we had to leave Colorado, we've been there 20 years, all my kids were born there and everything, but uh, we had, we ran into water rights issues. They were, uh, it, we weren't legally breaking the law, but the pressure was on to take the water so that they could build more houses and more shopping centers because there's more tax money to be gained from houses and shopping centers than there is from farmland. And you know, developers and politicians, they lose their mind when they see dollar signs. And so anyway, we had to move from Colorado because of the water. But um, yeah, I don't remember why I started telling you that. But, um, but anyway, so when we, I know, I remember why I was telling you that now. So when we decided to move, um, we were trying to evaluate, okay, where we were going to go. What we wanted to do is we wanted to work with a, a school or a health center because I don't think we've even come close to realizing the benefit. You know, we have a, the food service truck back up and deliver to us what everybody else is consuming. And I just wanted to see a demonstration of what the difference would be in the performance of the students and the recovery of health to, to people if, if we would do that. And so we were trying to find a place to do that. Um, but in the meantime, so we were looking for where would we going to do that, where, where would we go and do that. And I had uh, my father-in-law uh, told everybody we were going to move. We hadn't told anybody we were going to move yet. Well, he has a lot of connections and so I got calls coming in like crazy. Can you come help us here? Come help us there. There was like four that first initially came in and then we went to ASI. Do you know what ASI is? Okay, we went to ASI to meet and kind of sit down and, and talk with those people and see, you know, was, I, I've learned that institutions are not always um, very in tune with what, what they should be. And so I've learned what kind of questions to ask to see, do you really want agriculture 
do you understand why you want agriculture? And a lot of times I can just ask a handful of questions and I'll know, you know, what the reality is. So I don't want to sit down and visit with them. Well, it became even more stressful to me because when I left there were 32 places that wanted us to come help them. Um, you know, within the U.S. and, in, and all over the world. And so I'm only one person. So I have a burden for disseminating this knowledge and I want people, to, if they feel that burden for that, to, we need, like I said before, we need people within districts, agronomists, just like we, have, we need uh, pastors or healthcare providers, that ministry where they can help local churches to be, I don't know who I was telling you that to, but I was sitting on the airplane flying over here with a, an elderly couple from uh, Idaho who were farmers, they were Mormons, farmers, but he plants, um, I can't remember how many acres it was, but he plants this huge acreage of sweet corn. And then he just lets people come and, and harvest it. The people that you know, don't have any money or enough money and everything. I, there's, there's several churches that are doing this. There's another church I know of in Georgia. They plant a couple acres of potatoes and they harvest them and they send them to the food bank, you know, to people who can't afford to eat. Why couldn't we do that at every one of our churches? Or why couldn't we, you know, they're, 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 they're means of, of outreaching. But anyway, back to the whole issue. Um, disseminating the knowledge is one of the ways that I can try to multiply myself because I can't be in 32 places at one time. I need to multiply. There needs to be more people. And so one of the things that's in the process is a book because I can't be everywhere. And so if I can put it together so that people can take the knowledge. Because I had one place, they wanted to do a two-year program. They wanted me to set up a two-year training program. And I said, why two years? And, um, and they said, well, because we know that no two seasons are ever alike. And so we wanted the students to be able to see a couple of seasons. I said, well, you know, this at this point, it was, well, I've been doing this for 22 years and I've never seen the same season. The reality is we don't have the time. We don't have the luxury of time for that. We need to be able to sit people down and give them fundamental training in a few weeks. And then we have the technology for communication. Those people, they need to go out and they need to get, just get their hands dirty. And when they run into obstacles, they can pick up the phone and say, hey, what's going on here? We have the ability to do that. We're going to have to send people out that don't have the level of training that would be um, optimal or ideal. But, um, so... Is that lab that you're attached to, or that you did work through before? Uh -huh. There's only one in the whole planet that you know of. There's only one left. Um, how hard yeah. would it be, or how expensive would it be to set up other centers that can do the same kind of testing? Um, I actually have a person... I, I actually have already technicians that are capable of doing it. I have the money to set it up. But we don't, have the, we don't have the information that we need to run it. And one of the, the realities is, that one of the obstacles is we have to have enough business to make it viable. You know, we have to be giving business to that, that entity. It's going to cost, it, cost you know, $100,000, $200,000 just to set up the lab. I, I do have a technician who said that if we could, if we could do um, duplicate samples, he through trial and error, because I, I know what, I know what analytical um, methods are used. Um, what I don't know is whenever you're, whenever you're doing an analysis like that, 
when you're doing the ex extraction, what I don't know is I don't know how much extractant is being used and I don't know how much shaking time. So the process, we don't know what that is. And so if you, if you use more extractant and more shaking time, you're going to get a different number if you use less extractant and less shaking time. And it has to be consistent, you know, what, what, the way you're doing that. And, you know, it's one of those things I just haven't had enough time to, to put more into that. But there are resources out there. It's a matter of how are we going to get it all together where it belongs. But we, we should have our own infrastructure. We should be, from the bottom up, we should be, we should have everything. We should have, we should have people buying fertilizers, and, you know, soil amendments and other resources. I used to co-opt it in, out in Colorado. I did gardening classes. And I would bring in 55-gallon drums of the enzymatically digested fish. And people could bring their gallon jug and get a gallon of it or whatever they needed um, and pay $6 a gallon instead of $20. Um, you could, there's all kinds of resources like that that if it was co-opted and people would work together, it could make it more economical for people to, to do that. But, um, and I believe that the Lord could bring that together in a hurry because I think there's a lot of, a lot of resources out there, people and other resources, that they're just not connected to each other right now. And how to get that all so that it's connected is, is a challenge. But, you know, the, the, the Lord knows what's going on. And I, you have to, in some ways, I push the envelope all the time, trying to encourage people. Because and, and, I had somebody come to me with this whole fertilizer thing. They said, do you know that there's a whole lot of other people that would avail themselves of this knowledge, but it's just too inconvenient? You know, and... Sure, sure. And I bet there's a whole lot more people out there like you, and so it's a matter of, you know, how do you get those people all connected with each other and figure out what do we need to do here to, to work it out. We need to do that. We really need to do that. And we don't have the luxury of time to just kind of mutter about it. About it. It's, it kind of needs to be... That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Okay, any other questions? We're, we're done our time. At, uh -huh. What volume? Um, well, they normally need uh, about two cups of soil, but uh, there's several other people that may want to do that, and so my suggestion is if, if somehow or another we could get together, you guys could figure out, because it would be more economical if you guys could you know, go together and send a bunch all at the same time, because the, the shipping cost would be you know, less per person to be able to do that. Yeah, now um, there are some people that are already sending, they're already sending their samples straight to Kinsey Ag. Um, I am another resource and that you can send it through. That you, you usually get more benefit because I'm of the same mind. It, you know, they're wonderful people. But, you know, I'm trying to achieve the same thing that you guys are trying to achieve for the same reasons and everything. So it costs a little bit more to do that because it has to go through Kinsey Ag um, in order to get the type of soil analysis I need. Then the, the soil analysis costs a little bit more as a result of that. So, but you can send it straight to them. It gets to you faster if you do it with me. Um, or there is, um, there's a couple of other fellows who are also consultants with Kinsey Ag here in Australia. 
Peter Norwood is one of them. Um, and I can't remember the other fellow's name. I keep forgetting what his name is. Um, so you also have that option. You have those, those different options so of, of what you want to do. Well, you would, you would talk to them. Like, for example, if you send it straight to Kinsey Ag, you can do that straight yourself, um, and then you're going to get recommendations back from them. Uh, it takes three to four weeks from, from them from the time they receive it. That's not counting the, sh the shipping time that it takes to get there, to get recommendations back. If, if you were to do it with me, it usually takes about 10 days to two weeks, depending on what time of the year it is, because it's not bottlenecked. They, ser they, they serve all over the world. They do bit, you know, they're consulting all over the world. Um, so that, that reduces the time frame. It's, a, it's about, it's $50 to have a soil analysis done and recommendations through them. It's about 61 if you have it done through me. So it's a little bit more, it's a matter, I don't care which way you do it. Um, it's a matter of if the, the time thing is important to you, then that, that may be valuable. It's also, I try to give people as much as I can because, you know, the reality is a lot of people, they get back and say, okay, now what do I do with it? Even though the recommendations of what to do are all there, sometimes it's just a little overwhelming to them. Um, so, um, so, but it's up to you. And these guys, I know Peter is really good at what he does. And so if you guys want to do that too, I only care that you get the right information and you're going down the right road. That's all I care about on it. So those are your options to do that. Uh, to, to get an analysis done. To, 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 you know, do you have a question? No, on that soil test that you showed us mm -hmm. uh, from the Vanderbilt Farms with the recommendations for application rates, was that standard from the lab or was that your concern? That was all mine. So that I get the lab report and then I have, to, I have to reconcile everything on the lab report and then do whatever calculations need to be done to figure out what needs to be applied. And then I have to go and look at everything and how one thing is going to affect something else and. You know, so then I decide which materials would be the best materials to, to meet the requirements to, to, to apply what you need. And then, so the lab doesn't so, make those No, that would be the difference. Well, Kinsey Ag, if you send it through them, they'll get the lab report and they'll make a recommendation. Um, that would be another difference is usually I put a lot more information in the recommendation. They're pretty, just pretty bare bones. 800 pounds of this. Um, whereas I might put, you know, you need to put 800 pounds and put it in in the fall or in the spring or split the application because you know they have computers to run it. They check them all visually. They check them for um, variables that, that the computer programs, the spreadsheets might not pick up and everything. But they run it through a computer program now, a spreadsheet program, which is fine. They've got it refined down pretty good. But um, sometimes it's not adequate information for what people need who are not really familiar with the whole process to do it. So I generally have a lot more information on there. It takes me more time to do that because of you know, typing that all in and everything. But I try to give people the, best, the biggest advantage they have, they can have, to make it successful. Yeah, now that's um, a great service because most of us would have no clue, you know, how to yeah. my, my wife always fusses at me because people, you know, people call me all the time, say, can you help me with this, can you help me with that? And she says, you're not going to get anything done if they keep calling you. I said, I said, what am I supposed to do? I'm not going to, if, if somebody needs help, you know, I could charge people. I could say, okay, you know, Neil Kinsey charges $200 an hour for consulting. I phone and on site, if you want him on site, then it's $200 an hour plus you got to pay all of his expenses. And there are people that do that because it's that important to them. And they've got big growers that have millions of dollars at stake 
And so to pay a couple thousand dollars to have him come out and personally consult and pull samples and all that kind of stuff. And he's in his 70s. He doesn't do a whole lot of it anymore, but he's got some of his original clients that he does that for. He goes and pulls the samples and they pay him and they don't care um, what it costs. Uh, I should give you an illustration. I should, you know, if anybody needs to go, you're free, you're, you're welcome to go. You won't offend me or anything or walking out on me. Um, so um, there was a guy who he bought a piece of land in California. Now farmland in California is pretty expensive. It was 70 acres. He bought it. Nobody could get anything to grow on it. The salt levels were so high, sodium levels were so high there, that nobody could get anything to grow on it. And several people had bought it and, and tried and failed and everything. Well, this guy knew how to straighten the soil out. And so he made him an offer. He got it for nearly nothing because nobody could do anything with it. It wasn't worth anything to anybody. He came in, he pulled samples, he figured out what to do. The sodium was so high, well he straightened stuff out and he leached the sodium out. He's got a herb farm that's worth a ton of money now on that 70 acres. And all of the old timers came up in their pickups and just, you know, you draw attention to yourself when you can take something that nobody else can figure out how to solve. And you just simply apply sound principle to it. And um, I can't remember what he said. And, um, he said, did, did you tell these guys? They, they all kept coming, all these old timers who couldn't figure out you know, how to make it work. And this guy came in and made it all work. And, and Neil asked him, he said, he said, well, did you tell them what you did? And he said, no, I'm not going to tell them what I did. I want to buy some more land. <laughs> this media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.